a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you're just a little bit uh, freedom curious, this is your first time checking it out. Well, here's a special welcome to you. This is a place where we gather to engage in wrong think. And also to find out that we're not nearly as alone as we sometimes feel like we are. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And again, if if you're just checking this out for the first time, what is it that uh, that makes this program different from uh, other outspoken shows that talk about things that well, make people uncomfortable? Well, only this, and that is I, I do my level best to, to cover topics that actually matter, that actually have some bearing on your world, but I try to do so in a way that doesn't bring more anger or more fear into the situation. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm always going to succeed, but I just want you to understand my goal here is not to get you wound up. It's not to make you fearful. It's not to make you angry. Hopefully, at the end of the show, you are more sure of who you are and what you stand for than what you're against. That's the path of least resistance. Anybody can be against anything. You want to impress me? Tell me what you stand for. And I've got some good news today, which is not, you know, this doesn't happen very often. But in the course of this hour, we're going to be talking about uh, the pandemic and some good news. Ten facts that actually bring some needed perspective to the topic of COVID-19. And those ten facts, every one of them is a positive development. Funny how we don't get that, at least the the way that most of the media tends to report on it. It's always that, you know, we reported in the worst possible sense. Well, today there were another 14 cases. (laughs) Wow. And it's and the way they say it, it's almost like there's a funeral dirge going in the background. And I guess we're we're just kind of programmed to see it as the worst possible situation. We'll also spend a little bit of time talking about the dynamic that drives almost every conflict in society today. I know a lot of people tend to think in in kind of binary terms, not just us versus them, but, you know, Republican versus Democrat, progressive versus conservative, and so forth. It's collectivism versus the individual. Always has been. In fact, if you really want to get technical, that's just an extension of the war in heaven. But enough on that. I want to start with something, though. Uh, The good news is coming, but I'm going to start with something that is going to be a little bit of a touchy subject for some people. And it's the idea that when science and medicine aren't attached to political agendas, they can be very beneficial. But when they are used to advance the agendas of people in power, not so much. Paul Rosenberg has a very straightforward take on the weaponization of medicine and how it masquerades as science. And I got to tell you, what sparked this was a conversation with a friend yesterday about uh, doctors. And, you know, this is this is not to throw all doctors under the bus. I don't want to give the impression that, oh, yeah, you know, they're all the same. They're they're not. But there's something about the, the the medical profession. There's a. I don't know if it's peer pressure or or just the, the fact that the more government has become involved in healthcare, the more authoritarian healthcare becomes. 
And this is very frustrating, I think, to, to a good number of physicians. My friend was, was telling me, you know, it's, it's just crazy. She was having a conversation with a doctor who was mocking her because she was telling a friend about ivermectin. And he was flexing on her. Well, how about I get you on our schedule to address our pulmonologist and our internist about your amazing cures? And I've seen this before. And it's, it's not because we were all debating medical stuff one day and <laughs> this is what happened. I've seen this before because I've worked with a number of doctors who have taken less traditional approaches. Allopathic medicine is what most physicians practice. But uh, when you get into naturopaths, osteopaths, and so forth, it's, it's not like, oh, yeah, they're the heretics of the medical profession. At least it shouldn't be. They all have truth operating on their side. They just have different approaches. And frankly, some of those approaches are very workable. Even if medical science in some ways can't explain why it works. So, I mean, you know, you're, we're all entitled to our opinions. And my goal here isn't to convince you, hey, there really is something to acupuncture. Although I can tell you that uh, for, for people, for instance, suffering from, um, if you've ever heard of mine ears disease, it's a disease of the inner ear, destroys a person's equilibrium and, and makes you dizzy, nauseous, like staggering, <laughs> you want to throw up, nauseous. I've got a friend who struggled with this and said the only thing that gave him relief was acupuncture. So I don't know. It's, I know it's anecdotal, and I guess that's that's one of the complaints that I have is too often, you know, we try this one-size-fits-all thing. I just thought it was sad that my friend was being, you know, uh, this guy, this doctor was flexing on her when she was discussing other alternatives that exist, and she wasn't trying to give it as medical advice. It was just there, there seems to be a certain amount of ego that's involved, and it kind of reminds me of, you know, the whole term God complex, which I think is, is rooted in the joke, you know, what's the difference between God and a doctor? And the answer is, uh, God doesn't think he's a doctor. <laughs> so I thought I'd spend a little bit of time today talking about the weaponization of medicine. Paul Rosenberg always has a thoughtful take on these issues, and this is no exception. And he gets right to the point. He says, whether or not we can express it clearly or even perceive it clearly, I think nearly every adult grasps that medicine is being used as a weapon. Now, he points out, I'm not a doctor. But he says, I've been surrounded by medical professionals since my youth, beginning with my mom, who was not only an RN, but head nurse at two different hospitals. And he says, I've also been involved with science for a long time. So he says, I'll be brief, making just five primary points. But he says, we've been losing science and we've been losing medicine. And that's flatly unacceptable. The first point he makes is that science is not consensus. 10, 100, or even a million people all draped in lab coats and saying the same thing does not make it so. In fact, it matters not at all. It's nothing but theater, and it's anti-science. Paul Rosenberg says all science is, really, is a process of testing ideas. It's not an organization. It's not based upon authority. In fact, it's inherently anti-authority. Just ask Galileo. And it's very certainly not allied with power. All that matters in science are verifiable results. Number two, medicine stands apart from and above politics. Medicine is the application of science to the furtherance of human help. Health, rather. Politics is the use of persuasion and power to rule masses of humans. You see what he's saying here? Those are fully separate disciplines. 
To place politics over medicine is to subjugate and degrade medicine. It's a path backwards into darkness. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I'll leave details on this point to working medical practitioners who can provide them with far greater specificity than I can, provided they're not too frightened to do so. Because you know what happens to doctors who speak out? You know, sometimes they're threatened with being stripped of their professional licensure. Point number three, peer review no longer means much. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, again, I won't go into great detail, but peer review has been captured by academic hierarchies and almost fully separated from science proper. It's become a tool of institutional power wielded by academics who sold out science for the favors of power and politics. At one time, peer review referred to the honest replication of experiments. That time is past. Number four, he says, medicine and science have nothing to do with social pressure. Once you mix science and medicine with social pressure, they're no longer science or medicine. At that point, they're instruments of thuggery, nothing more. And finally, point number five, he says, if you don't read multiple scientific papers, especially papers from rebels and castouts, well, then you simply don't know. Now, you can pretend you know, of course, and you can be sure that agents of the status quo will provide you with passable reasons to repeat their slogans, but you won't actually know. What you see on TV is propaganda. What you see on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube is pre-censored. So if you really want to know, you'll have to find the scientific papers that address your question, and you're going to need papers that are rejected by televised authorities. If you don't, All you have are pre-censored conclusions, the underlying facts of which may or may not be reliable. Paul Rosenberg says at this point, if you don't include conspiracy theory research, you're more or less stuck with Orwell's Ministry of Truth. Sad, but mostly true. So what brought us to this point? I'm thinking that's that's a question worth exploring. And in fact, when we come back on the other side of the break, that's exactly what we're going to do. I can tell you this, it's not a problem of people being too stupid or being too evil. It's more a matter of emotional strength, as in people don't have the strength to face unauthorized truth. Plus, they've been conditioned to believe that truth is something that is given to you by an authority figure. We'll talk about that, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back sharing with you an article from Paul Rosenberg, one of my favorite thinkers, just because he takes a very principled, approach to whatever topic he's tackling, but also does so with a very careful approach that's designed not to bring further anger and fear into the situation. And specifically, he is talking about the weaponization of medicine. I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. He gives five reasons why why, uh, medicine is being weaponized. First one being science is not consensus. Secondly, medicine stands apart from and above politics. Third, peer review no longer means much. Four, medicine and science have nothing to do with social pressure. 
And fifth, if you don't read multiple scientific papers, especially papers from rebels and outcasts, you simply don't know. There's just the official version, the the Dr. Fauci version, version rather, that, that you're supposed to consider. And Paul Rosenberg says the problem is emotional weakness. It's not that people are stupid. It's just we don't have the strength to face unauthorized truth. Having been trained in submission to authority, to then speak against an authority is terrifying. So people find ways to ignore truth, which has no backing but itself, and to sanctify authority, which is backed by everything from shame to guns. There's also the fear of appearing stupid or of being publicly exposed as stupid. That can be overwhelming. And with important people tearing up anybody who's not in lockstep with them, defiance can seem very expensive. Paul Rosenberg also talks about power being uh, wrong. Power being wrong calls too much into question. Think about that one. I think this is what what handicaps a lot of people. If the high and mighty can be publicly wrong, repeatedly, repeatedly rather, and adamantly, then what can't be called into question? And if everything can be questioned, then that means you pretty much have to face the world alone and sort out for yourself what is true and what isn't. That's very hard for a lot of people. And finally, once people act upon fear, they can either turn against it and admit their error, or they can defend their errors at length. And Paul Rosenberg says, if the people who thrive on those fears maintain a stream of frights and slogans, anyone on the other side becomes a heretic to be hunted down and forced to submit. Now, he says, none of these things have any connection to truth, only to power and intimidation. And that is anti-science, no matter how much it masquerades as science. Isn't that interesting? The weaponization of medicine. The first time I saw that headline, I thought, boy, that's a good description. And again, this is not to throw all doctors under the bus. There are good medical personnel out there. There are good medical providers. I think they're frustrated. I've talked to some of them, and and not just about, you know, the pandemic response, just in general, over the last 10, 15 years, I've talked to medical providers who've said how frustrated they are at the the increasing entanglement of government and medicine. I know it's all been done in the, you know, interest of we're just trying to make things better for everybody, but it doesn't really have that effect, does it? And of course, now when, when you have people who are seriously trying to consolidate power over everybody possible. Medicine is a very useful tool because there's a credibility that comes with medicine. Well, these doctors, you know what they know? You know do you know what kind of schooling they have to have? And I'll reiterate, anytime someone tells you, oh, you think you know more than me? Hey, when it comes to medical knowledge, I'll concede the doctor may know that medical knowledge inside and out. I'll assume they do, or they wouldn't have the title doctor. But when it comes to making decisions as to what's best for me, get it through your head, Doc. I'm the one best qualified to make those decisions. You're, you're free to offer advice. And if you can offer it persuasively, and particularly if you can offer it without coercion or without an obvious <clears throat> attachment to an agenda, I may very well consider it. And upon informed consent, I may actually follow that medical advice. But increasingly, it looks like we're being backed into a corner where it's like, look, you either do this or else. That doesn't seem quite right. 
and and I don't understand quite where the authoritarian um, slant comes from in in some doctors' minds, and, and particularly in some of these doctors who have public health positions. They just seem to become apparatus of the state, and it becomes a little symbiotic relationship, like the little bird who picks the bugs off the back of the rhinoceros. The state helps those doctors, the doctors help the state, and it just seems that that is a very convenient arrangement because both of them benefit. Let's talk about some good news. You ready for some good news? I'm ready for some good news. This is the good news about COVID. Remember, we're only supposed to think there's just bad news about the pandemic. Well, Dr. Thomas Seiler has 10 facts that bring some needed perspective to COVID-19. This is what he has to say. He says, now that we've had 18 months to slow the spread, it's time to take stock of the pandemic. And we've learned many good things that the media and uh, pandemic managers rarely report. Most fundamentally, we do not need to be afraid of COVID-19 anymore. Oh, I know. I can hear the jaws hitting the ground from here. The media and some government health authorities are still pushing hysteria and fear. But Dr. Seiler says that should not prevail. Let's look at the good news that can calm our fears about COVID-19. There'll be time at a later date to look at the bad and the ugly of the resolving pandemic. The first good news is globally, the survival rate for COVID-19 is 99.8%. Under the age of 70, the survival rate for COVID-19 is 99.7%. I'm sorry, 99.97%. Now, this is on a par with many influenza seasons. Younger Americans who are younger than 70 do not have to fear COVID-19 any more than influenza, and we know how to protect the elderly. I mean, how is that not good news? Secondly, Dr. Seidler points out that herd immunity for the alpha strain of COVID is here. 67% of the American population have had at least one COVID-19 vaccination. The official number of cases is about 10% of the population, but several antibody studies show that a percentage of those with natural immunity is four to six times higher. Dr. Marty Macri, a Johns Hopkins professor, estimates that 80 to 85% of the population is immune from natural immunity and vaccination. And he says those who deny this must explain how cases and deaths started to decline in January, way before there was a significant vaccine effort. Now, he says COVID-19 will not go away. Instead, we're now transitioning from a pandemic to endemic status. And indeed, some eminent virologists say that uh, vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic is making herd immunity more difficult to obtain through the creation of variants. I actually have another story I'll be sharing later in the show on that. Number three, Dr. Seiler says the average age of death from COVID is 78. The average life expectancy in America is 78. Now, that's not to say, don't worry, only old people are dying of COVID-19. However, he says this fact should direct and inform our policies to protect the elderly, especially. Children and those under 70 are at much lower risk. Number four, he says early outpatient treatment should be adopted immediately for COVID-19. Hydroxychloroquine works. Ivermectin works. It's been estimated that 85% of COVID-19 deaths could have been prevented were these medicines used early. 
America's frontline doctors have an excellent compilation of research. The cost of those treatments is about a dollar a day. A new a new IV treatment, Regen Cove, has been approved for early use in COVID-19. He says, don't wait to see if you get sick. Treat early. Now, we got to take a quick break, so we'll come back to this in just a few moments. But yeah, you didn't hear me wrong. It's This is good news about COVID-19. This is the kind of good news that those who are trying to uh, consolidate power through the fear spread about COVID-19, they don't really care if you know about this. In fact, they'd prefer you didn't. It might lessen their grasp upon our minds and hearts. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. It's a badge of honor in this time and age to be one of those people who stands up and says, no, <laughs> I've I've extricated myself from the hive mind and I'm going to uh, I'm going to take responsibility for my own worldview. And our program is brought to you in part today by lifesavingfood.com. I would encourage you to check them out for a couple of reasons. Number one, you use uh, my name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. That's the coupon code that will save you 10% on anything you purchase. But uh, most importantly, I want you to check them out because they have high-quality food storage products, packages that uh, you can choose from to either bolster your existing food storage supply or to get started. Just, you know, on the off chance that you look around you and say, things seem a bit unsettled these days. Maybe maybe it would be a good idea to have some things set aside for a rainy day. Seriously, 25-year shelf life, packages that can fit any budget. Lifesavingfood.com. I've even got a nice link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I'm sharing with you an article from Dr. Thomas Seiler. He is a Medicovid-19 I know, that's a combination of words you probably don't hear very often these days. But this really is some good news. And it's strange, but it's it's not the kind of news that seems to lead out in, in many of the uh, dominant uh, narrative-reinforcing outlets. In other words, most of the corporate media seems to take the, the, the government's approach and just, you know, it's, this is terrible, this is awful. You know, get the vaccine. Everybody's, everybody's in danger. Are, are you not fearing? Hey, hey, are you listening? <laughs> so uh, sit back and enjoy a little bit of good news. Point number five that Dr. Seiler sprints here is that uh, children are safe from COVID-19 and don't spread the virus either. Now, what he means here is he says a study in the UK showed the survival rate in children is 99.995%. So yeah, kids can get it, but... That's a pretty good survival rate, wouldn't you say? In the U.S., 335 children have died since the start of the pandemic. I know that sounds, you know, horrible. Oh, my goodness, 335 children. Whoa, just one is too much. But if you look at that compared to how many have died from flu or unintentional drug overdoses, yeah, it's, it's not even a drop in a swimming pool. A study shown a study done by Johns Hopkins and Fair Health showed that all of the children that died from April 2020 to August 2020 had immune problems or were chronically ill. 
in that period, not one healthy child died. Children have more chance of dying in car wrecks or of unintentional drug overdoses or from influenza than from COVID-19. And there's a, there's a counterpoint to this too, or at least there's a, there's a corollary to this. Vaccination for healthy children is not needed. Next, Dr. Seiler points out Sweden did not have a lockdown or mask mandate and did better with cases and deaths than many countries. Why is that good news? Well, it shows that the lockdown did not work. And it had serious cultural and economic side effects. And now there's ample literature to show that masks, as we are using them, do not work. Next, he talks about how persons who've had COVID-19 infection have a robust and long-lasting immunity. And this immunity is also likely to protect against variants. Now, I should mention, he has links in each of these points that will show you the, the documentation that's backing up what he's saying. Dr. Seiler says his evidence continues to accumulate that the new mRNA vaccines are neither as effective nor safe as advertised He says, I would advise not getting the vaccine on top of your natural immunity if you had the COVID-19 infection. Next, he says, there is very little, if any, spread of COVID-19 from asymptomatic persons. This lie was spread early to maximize fear of this new virus. COVID-19 is like other respiratory viral infections. You catch it from being around someone who has symptoms. Like other viral infections, if you're sick, stay home, quarantine yourself, treat yourself. We don't need to quarantine the asymptomatic healthy. Number nine, the death rate nationally for COVID-19 has been going down since January. Strange how we never hear about that. Breathless news reporters talk about cases, hospital occupation, and contagiousness, but they never mention the death decline. There's been a small uptick in deaths in some areas over the last week, but not anywhere close to last winter. And he says there will be some variations in the death rate as we transition to endemic status. And finally, number 10, the Delta variant is acting like a typical historical virus variant. Typically, variants happen all the time and are more contagious, but less deadly. Initial reports show that this is likely true with Delta. A UK report states the Delta variant is likely 20 times less deadly than the Alpha strain, but that more data needs to be collected. Now, the media also constantly mentions that Delta is more contagious, which is also true, and the other Greek variants are likely to behave in the same fashion. So here's the bottom line. We don't need to be afraid of COVID anymore. That doesn't mean we pretend it doesn't exist. It just says, let's begin to end the hysteria and the fear. The worst is over. We're transitioning to endemic status which means a low level of cases and deaths. Now, he says we will have many fewer deaths if we start to treat treat the infection early now with the available outpatient treatments. We should resist further attempts at lockdowns and mask mandates as neither have worked, and we know exactly whom to protect. That would be the elderly and those with chronic health problems. That's where we should concentrate our energies. Huh, sounds a lot like something that was said by, oh, I don't know, tens of thousands of physicians and others who signed on to the Great Barrington Declaration last year. Strange how that was ballyhooed by so many, you know, of, of those in the uh, dominant narrative. They didn't want to see that. 
Thankfully, says Dr. Seiler, children have very little risk and don't need masks at school or vaccinations. Variants will come, but will not send us back into a situation like last year. Can our pandemic managers take some of this useful information and transform it into healthful public policies from this point forward? Or is there another agenda behind the unending fear, hysteria, and the constant push for 100% vaccination? That remains to be seen, says Dr. Seiler, but for now, let's celebrate the good news. Okay, I think that's probably good advice. Look, if you're going to survive... If you're not just going to be someone who's at the whim of of those who are dispensing information, you've got to take ownership for your own worldview. That means you have got to learn to think like an expert. And I know that that sounds impossible to to some people because when I say you got to think like an expert, they're thinking, well, I got to go to school then and I got to get a degree in, you know, microbiology or medicine and, you know, immunology and virology. No. You just have to be willing to do your homework and really dig in and try to understand it. It can be done. I'm not going to pretend, oh, and it's easy. Why, you know, most people could just do it in their sleep. You just put the book under your pillow, boom, by osmosis, the information's there in your head. No, that's not the case. What it comes down to is how committed are you to be connected to reality. And I don't use that term lightly. I, I, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm, you know, telling you, hey, everybody out there who, who doesn't think the way you do is a stark raving lunatic who's detached from reality. But I do feel confident in telling you that there is something that I think could safely be called a mass psychosis along the lines of the mass psychosis that swept through the colonies back when they were burning witches in Salem. In other words, it's a, it's a mental breakdown that is affecting an awful lot of people who are unwilling to do that work of really questioning and sorting things out for themselves. And this is one of the reasons why I produce show notes for every single hour of the program that I do. It's not that I have all the answers, but I can connect you with people who are pretty good at asking the right questions to give you a better, broader view of what's happening and and not leave you dependent upon, you know, being spoon-fed by highly paid, blow-dried spinmeisters who are extremely good at keeping you looking in a certain direction without uh, letting you get too close to truths that uh, those in power would rather you not consider. Something to think about. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the dynamic that drives almost every conflict in our society today. That's the clash between collectivism and the individual. And again, if you're one of those people who is serious about owning your worldview and really being willing to, to pay the price to know what you know, I've got a treat for you. I'll share some thoughts from Richard M. Ebling coming up just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Yep, if you are in the market for a home, and this is particularly true for my listeners in Utah, and especially in southern Utah, you already know it's the hottest real estate market most of us have ever seen. And what that means is when you find the home of your dreams, brother, you better be squared away. You better have your financing in order. Because that home ain't going to wait around for you to, you know, get your ducks in a row. Well, this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She knows what the lenders need. She knows what the borrowers need and can get the job done from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. You can count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Call call 435-703-4522. Or if you're in St. George, you can visit their offices at 619 South Bluff Street. So I promised you a little uh, treasure here from Richard M. Ebling. Modern collectivist trends and how to resist them. Why does this matter? Okay, let's let's set the stage here. So much of the conflict that we see going on around us is based in the idea that, uh, well, there's two opposing sides. It's a very binary kind of conflict. So it's the Republicans versus the Democrats. It's the liberals versus the conservatives. And in some cases, those labels you know, make a difference. Usually, though, it's it's a distraction. It's it's more of a call to tribalism. That's that's the danger of labels. If you really want to see where the rub is, it comes down to the collective versus the individual. And there's a lot of collectivist stuff that's happening right now, and uh, a lot of this has been accelerated through the COVID nineteen pandemic. But a wise person would ask, "How did we get here?" What's the path? What were the decisions that were made that led us to this point? And it's not a matter so much of fixing blame as understanding. How did we get from there to here? Richard M. Ebling, writing for the Future of Freedom Foundation, has some answers. And I got to warn you, this guy does not write short, pithy little essays, you know, just little pre-digested sound bites or slogans that are, that are so simple to parrot, you know, to anybody you run into. He writes uh, some very detailed essays. But my point is, this is information that you would probably find useful in providing that, uh, that broader perspective. Whether you agree with him or not, you can at least have a better understanding of what's going on. Now, Richard Ebling says, you know, the First World War and the Great Depression, would, he would suggest, are the major events that have shaped most of the political, social, and economic trends for more than a century The Great War, as it used to be called, undermined the generally classical liberal world that prevailed at least in much of Western and Central Europe and North America prior to 1914. Not that the world before that was some pristine reflection of the laissez-faire ideal of fully recognized and protected individual liberty, radically free markets with strictly limited government assigned only to protect people's right to their respective life, liberty, and honestly acquired property. In fact, he says, in many instances, very far from it. He says, by the benchmarks of the world before the heyday of classical liberal ideas and policies in the middle of the 19th century, however, the Western world practiced a high degree of freedom. 
That period also stands out on the same basis in comparison to the rise of modern collectivism in the decades following the First World War in the 20th century. So he paints the picture first, describing a classical liberal world of individual rights and liberty, saying, after all, basic civil liberties of freedom of speech and press, of religion, of peaceful assembly, the legal security of one's person and property, these were more or less widely accepted as the norm and ideal, on the basis of which any breaches of them were evaluated and criticized. Compared to the mercantilist economic restrictions and controls of the 18th century, much of the civilized world had moved to a recognition of and respect for widely unregulated freedom of private enterprise and international trade. And he goes into some details about what this looked like. And then he tells about how the world of wide liberty was overturned by the First World War and how that war resulted in regimentation and collectivism. This is interesting, too. I'll give you a couple of examples that he, he talks about. This is from, uh, oh, Taylor, A.J.P. Taylor. British historian, he described it like this. This is what changed with the Great War. The mass of people became, for the first time, active citizens. Their lives were shaped by orders from above. They were required to serve the state instead of pursuing exclusively their own affairs. Five million men entered the armed forces, many of them, though a minority, under compulsion. The Englishman's food was limited. Its quality changed by government order. His freedom of movement was restricted. His conditions of work prescribed. Some industries were reduced or closed. Others artificially fostered. The publication of news was fettered. Streetlights were dimmed. The sacred freedom of drinking was tampered with. Licensed hours were cut down. And beer watered by order. The very time on the clocks were changed. From 1916 onward, every Englishman got up an hour earlier in the summer than he otherwise would have done thanks to an act of Parliament. The state established a hold over its citizens which, though relaxed in peacetime, was never to be removed, and which the Second World War was to again increase. The history of the English state and the English people merged for the first time. And before we get feeling too smug, just keep in mind that FDR and the New Deal in the 1930s did the same thing. It nationalized the American people. And Richard Ebling goes into some detail about how that took place. He talks about how collectivism came to America and people passively followed. Some great quotes from Robert Nisbet. And then came acceptance of presidential discretion as to when to go to war, rules for presidential war making, and how that was uh, believed to limit the American deaths. And then he brings us to today. Now, keep in mind, he goes into some great detail here. I'm not talking about an essay you're going to knock out in about, you know, 15 minutes. This is probably a good couple of hours of your time if you want to read and really understand what Ebling is talking about. But he gets to how COVID-19 and Big Brother equals tyranny. This is the part you and I have lived through. Okay, Most of us probably didn't live through World War One or World War Two, but we've seen this collectivism growing and growing throughout our lives. And that leads us to the question, so what should Friends of Freedom do? Now that collectivism is so firmly entrenched, what can we do? This is what Richard M. Ebling suggests. He says, first, know some of the history how and why the Leviathan appeared and grew to such a monstrous size in comparison to before World War I. 
He says it's important to be able to explain to and assure people that there is another way other than political paternalism and planning. And however imperfectly it existed before World War I, and, this, and to remember that it brought great prosperity and well-being to uh, hundreds of millions of people. You can point to actual history to show that it wasn't always like this. We're not just doing things the way they've always been done. There has been a change. Second, he says, uncompromisingly and in a clear and articulate manner, learn to make the case for individual liberty and rights. And for why the new tribal political paternalism of identity politics and cancel culture are inconsistent with and actually a danger to a free society. Third, he says, do not let those in favor of these various forms of political, economic, and social collectivism set the terms of the debate. Politely and courteously, but firmly, insist that America does not suffer from systemic racism and has historically kept moving in a direction of greater respect and rights for each and every individual. If this march toward liberty has been impeded or sidetracked, it's due to the very policies and presumptions of the collectivists in our midst. And fourth, he recommends, do not become despondent or despairing in the face of seemingly irreversible increases in political paternalism and planning. The collectivists want it to seem as if they're on the right side of history, when in fact theirs is an ideological and political journey backwards to a tribalism and tyranny of centuries gone by. Richard M. Ebling says freedom can win, but it requires dedication, determination, and a willingness to fight the good fight even when the trend seems against liberty. This is good to know, right? He says it all starts with each of us thinking as is with each of us as thinking individuals devoted to freedom. The 21st century can showcase a better and more consistent classical liberalism, one that shows how human beings can be free, prosperous, and peaceful. But he says it falls upon each of us to do our part. And I would just add to that, you can't share light that you yourself don't possess. So if you want to be one who's a carrier of light... Go get the light. Yep, you got to learn what you got to learn. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. I'm glad you found us. However you happen to find this program... And I'm going to do my very best to make it worth your time by helping you grasp a little bit better big picture of what's going on in the world, as well as what you can do about it. And of course, with that is the understanding, there's a lot of stuff going on that you and I just can't do anything about. That's okay, because there's a lot going on right there where we're standing that we do have influence over. And of course, we always have the ability to choose how we're going to react to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. 
Our program is brought to you each day by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Got a nice link to each one of these sponsors in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll also find links to all the various articles that I talk about, as well as links to the guests that I have on the show. And I thought we'd spend a little bit of time on Afghanistan, since it continues to dominate the news cycle. There are a lot of aspects of what's happening there right now, but there are also a couple of very difficult facts that need to be faced. I thought we'd just go ahead and dive head-on into them and, and get them out of the way. The first fact is... That, you know, for all the, the talk about, uh, um, you know, well, you know, the U.S. is leaving Afghanistan and it's a terrible thing, the most embarrassing thing to happen, the most humiliating thing to happen within memory to this great country. But, you know, the real problem isn't how the U.S. is leaving Afghanistan. No, the real problem is that we shouldn't have been there in the first place. I understand, by the way, this is going to anger some people because... You know, we've, we've been taught, hey, our brave men and women are in harm's way. We don't talk that way about, you know, errands that they've been sent on. Well, just understand, we've got to make this distinction here. This is not condemning those people who in good faith enlisted in the military service, who went and fulfilled, you know, whatever missions they were assigned to do. But we dang well can take, uh, take a very jaded look at the policymakers who sent them to do what they did. Because it looks like uh, there's been an awful lot of treasure and lives spent just to, to bring things back to uh, where they were before the U.S. invaded 20 years ago. I really like Kent McManigal because he has that ability to cut through the fluff and get right to the heart of the matter. And he says nearly everyone criticizes the way the U.S. left Afghanistan and claims to know what the right way would have been. But Kent says, I see it differently. The tragic situation in Afghanistan has lessons for Americans. But he says, I see most Americans missing the lessons because they're looking at it wrong. The problem wasn't in the leaving, it was going there. His point is that it's smarter to not make mistakes in the first place rather than to dig yourself in deeper and deeper for 20 years and then realize, well, there's no good way out. Kent McManigal says the time to worry about what's going to happen to someone you've pushed off a cliff is before you push them off the cliff, not as they smack the ground below. Yes, he says, I realize some people chose to join with those who push, who then pushed them off the cliff, but they've had 20 years to find a parachute and chose not to do so. Maybe they see the error of their ways now when it's too late. The most important lesson to be learned from this situation might be this. Government is not your friend. Do you think anyone is paying attention and learning this lesson? Another lesson might be, don't meddle in other people's business. Doing so is usually a mistake, especially if you're using them as pawns and putting them in the position to die if or when things go wrong. He says, yes, I know there are those who believe the U.S. government should police the world. They are wrong, and this ought to remove any remaining doubt. Those who most need to learn this lesson won't. Now, Ken McManigal points out the Afghans would have benefited from understanding another truth before the lesson forced itself on them in this horrible way. That would be, don't trust government. Don't rely on government employee promises that they'll keep you safe. 
Don't imagine your life matters more than their own life or even more than their job. It doesn't, no matter what they say to get you on board. He says the Americans stranded in Afghanistan would have been better off had they understood this as well. Yet another lesson everyone should pay attention to. Never imagine a political situation won't change. It will. And if something can't continue unchanged forever, it won't. Nothing can. Part two of this lesson could be stated as don't side with the team that's going to have you hang to, to have to hang you out to dry sooner or later. Were you paying attention? Are you learning? I understand. Some people might think, oh, that's really indifferent. You know, the poor Afghan people are suffering and, you know, the, the Americans who were there. But this is this is very typical of the lessons that we often learn when it comes to interventionism. Oh, sure, you know, our officials send everybody in there with the best of intentions, but interventionism is the incubator for some very bad things, terrorism being one of them. I mean, come on, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I know we're supposed to believe the whole reason that happened, the reason these Saudi and, uh, what else did they have, Pakistani? I don't think there was a lot of Afghanis that were, you know, participating in the hijackings, but... You know, it was primarily Saudi Arabians. Um, these these radicalized individuals flew those planes into the World Trade Center. We're supposed to believe they did it because they hate our, our country because it's so free and so awesome. I remember George W. Bush talking about they hate us for our freedom. No, no, actually they don't. If I could paraphrase uh, David Cross, who said, you know, uh, why would why would they do this? Why? If only there was some explanation. Maybe, maybe they didn't like the fact that uh, there were American troops stationed in Saudi Holy Lands. Maybe they didn't like the idea that, that uh, Israel was receiving favorable treatment over other countries from the U.S. Maybe they didn't like the fact that, you know, up to 500,000 vulnerable people died in Iraq due to U.S. sanctions. Well, why would why would you think that they would do it for that? Because they freaking told us that. That's why. <laughs> That's exactly what Bin Laden said. The point being, it was interventionism that sowed the seeds that uh, that uh, we saw blossom in all their horror on September 11th of 2001. Pat Buchanan was one who warned about this. Actually, he warned about this back in uh, 2000 when he was running for president. When he was a presidential candidate, he talked about how America faces a choice. She can either be, um, you know, a nation that is an exemplar of freedom, or she can continue to be the world's policeman who goes around night-sticking troublemakers until she finds herself in a bloody brawl that she cannot handle. In fact, he actually said the words, will it take a cataclysmic atrocity on our own soil to awaken us to the going price of global gamesmanship? Now, keep in mind, this was this was just a, about seven years after the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and after the bombing of two of our embassies, one in Tanzania and, shoot, I forget where the other one was, also in Africa. Yeah, I know there are bad people out there. But swatting the hornet's nest, I mean, look, when if, if you stop swatting a hornet's nest, does that mean the hornet's won? Or did you just get wise 
to not stirring up the hornet's nest. Got an article here from Pat Buchanan. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. The Bitter Fruits of Interventionism. And in this article, Pat talks about some of the lessons that we have to learn about what interventionism brings. He says, as President Lyndon Johnson and the best and brightest of the 1960s were broken on the wheel of Vietnam, the Biden presidency may well be broken on the wheel of the Taliban's triumph in Afghanistan. Less than a week into the chaotic U.S. withdrawal at Hamid Karzai International Airport. A CBS poll found that Americans, while still approving of President Joe Biden's decision to get us out of this forever war, were stunned by how badly botched the withdrawal was being executed. By 75 to 25, Americans believe the withdrawal is going very badly. Those who believe it's gone very badly outnumber by 9 to 1 those who believe it's gone very well. To echo, you know, Kent uh, McManigal, does this mean we're learning anything about this or are we just ignoring the lessons? We'll come back to Pat Buchanan's article here in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is the Brian Hyde Show brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this article here from Pat Buchanan about the bitter fruits of interventionism. I know that uh, some people think it's unfair to compare, you know, the fall of Saigon with the fall of, uh, well, the fall of Kabul in uh, Afghanistan. But wow, wow, the the similarities, you know, the picture of the uh, uh, Chinook helicopters uh, airlifting people from embassy roofs. Pretty crazy how 45 years later, you know, it's it's history repeating itself. And if you ask Americans by 75 to 25 percent. Most Americans believe the withdrawal from Afghanistan is going very badly. And the, for those who uh, believe it's gone very badly, they outnumber by 9 to 1 those who are saying, well, it's gone very well. Frankly, it only seems like it's the Biden administration, particularly his press secretary, who seem to say, I would say that there's no problem with this. Pat Buchanan points out that Biden's own approval rating has plummeted by has plummeted rather to 50 percent. That is the lowest of his presidency. Yet the disastrous debacle at Kabul airport is by no means played out. In fact, Pat Buchanan warns it could become worse, far worse. For it's impossible to believe the United States can get all of its citizens out by August deadline of uh, by uh, Biden's deadline of August 31st. That's less than a week away. And it's impossible to believe we can withdraw all of our imperiled Afghan allies from that 20 year war who today live in terror for themselves and their families. Pat Buchanan says, and there is a certainty, indeed it is already happening, that some of those left behind will be subjected to atrocities by rogue elements of the Taliban, if not its leadership. 
These atrocities will make for film and footage in the Western press, underscoring the failure of the United States to rescue allies it left behind. And with reports already emanating from Afghanistan about food shortages, the country could become a human rights hellhole by fall. He says, consider, the Taliban may have been able to overrun 15 provincial capitals and Kabul in a week. But the government officials running those cities cannot readily be replaced by Taliban fighters whose vocation for the last two decades has been fighting a terrorist guerrilla war. And while the triumphant Taliban have no interest in a renewed war with the United States, they do have an ideological interest in trumpeting their triumph over the superpower and rubbing America's nose in its defeat. And so he asks, what then are the consequences of America's humiliation? Biden's reputation as a capable veteran of half a century at the highest levels of the U.S. government is being daily deconstructed. The United States is being portrayed in the world media as a pitiful, helpless giant. In former President Richard Nixon's phrase, that is. And and that is the America whose public face today is that of Joe Biden. As for the American people's appetite for intervention in future wars, for democracy and nation-building, that is almost surely gone. Pat Buchanan says nations that have relied on the U.S. to come and to fight their wars for them should probably be raising their defense budgets. Billions of dollars in U.S. military equipment, armored vehicles, Black Hawk helicopters, drones, artillery, mortars, thousands of rifles, and tons of munitions have been lost. Some of this will end up in China and Russia, with some of it transferred to ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And lest we forget, other dominoes did fall in the wake of America's strategic defeat in Vietnam. Cambodia fell to Pol Pot's genocidal Khmer Rouge. Laos fell to the communists. Ethiopia fell to the Derg in East Africa. The former Portuguese colonies of Mozambique and Angola fell to the communist bloc. Marxists took over Grenada in the Caribbean and the Sandinistas took Nicaragua. At the end of the 70s, our Near East ally, the Shah of Iran, was overthrown in an anti-American Islamic Republic led by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini was established. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Across the Atlantic, Euro-communism took root. The perception that President Jimmy Carter did not understand the character and purpose of our communist enemies and that Ronald Reagan did was among the reasons that the country took its gamble on the Gipper. Pat Buchanan says that another casualty of the Afghan fiasco is Biden's credibility as his own doing. Repeatedly in recent days, what Biden predicted would never happen, did happen. And the president made statements seemingly disconnected to the events on the ground in Kabul. Often last week, Biden gave off the image of a befuddled man who did not understand what was going on or know what he was doing. Nor are Republicans alone in making the point. Democrats and NATO allies are saying the same thing. Pat Buchanan says one of the principal casualties of Kabul is the establishment's grand vision of a U.S. foreign policy for the new century, where liberalism and democratic capitalism have won the battle for the future, and the U.S. victorious in the Cold War would lead the world in the realization of a new world order where we would write the rules and police the planet. He says Biden depicted that the new world struggle that new world struggle, rather, between democracy and authoritarianism, and America is leading mankind toward the triumph of democracy. 
But Pat Buchanan says the debacle in Kabul begins Biden's leadership of that struggle with America's worst humiliation in living memory. Now, I hope you understand this is not about, well, let's rub Biden's nose in it because he's Biden and he's a Democrat and, you know, this our side didn't win. This goes beyond just partisan politics here. Because Republicans have been very enthusiastic supporters of interventionism. I wonder, like Kent McManigal wonders and Pat Buchanan wonders, will we learn from the lessons that we've seen here? Have they borne the fruit that uh, we were told they would? Because it seems pretty bitter from where I'm standing. And not to rub salt in anybody's wounds, but I'll ask the question, just for the sake of conversation here, are we any freer today, here at home, because of what took place in Afghanistan over the last 20 years? I know what my answer would be. I don't know what your answer would be, but maybe that's a question worth worth uh, considering. You know, getting a clear take on geopolitical issues like this can be very, very complicated because there are so many moving parts. I did come across a very interesting analysis of the strategic apocalypse in Afghanistan and how it's uh, a seismic shift that's actually been years in the making. And it's a seismic shift that actually looks very favorable for China out of everybody in the world. This is from Alastair Crook, writing for Strategic Culture, who says, A huge geopolitical event has just occurred in Afghanistan. The implosion of a key Western strategy for managing what uh, MacKinder in the 19th century called the Asian heartland, that it was accomplished without fighting, and in a few days, is almost unprecedented. But it's been a shock. Not just one of those ephemeral shocks that's soon forgotten, but a deeply traumatic one. Unlike the psychological impact of 9-11, the Western world is treating the experience as mourning for the loss of a loved one. And so he says there have been ministerial tears, chest beating, and an entry into the first three stages of grief simultaneously. Firstly, shock and denial, a state of disbelief and numbed feelings. Then pain and guilt for those allies of ours huddled at the Kabul airport. And finally, anger. And the fourth stage is already in sight in the U.S. depression. As polls show America already swinging towards deep pessimism about the pandemic, economic prospects and um, economic and prospects, uh, as well as the course on which the American Republic is set. In fact, here's a clear statement from the editors of The New York Times as to who that loved one was. Quote, the Afghan debacle is tragic because the American dream of being the indispensable nation in the world where the values of civil rights, women's empowerment and religious tolerance rule proved to be just a dream. Oh, my. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but uh, this really is some good outside-the-box thinking about uh, what is really taking place and how the pieces are lining up. It's kind of nice to get a point of view from someone who isn't just, you know, parroting whatever, you know, the White House press releases are saying. Again, you are under no obligation to agree. It's strictly for your consideration, but it will definitely give you a broader vantage point from which to survey the situation. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to mention uh, lifesavingfood.com. One of the great sponsors of this program and a very timely sponsor if you look at uh, certain events, both uh, near and far. Not a lot of things are making me feel really secure about uh, the direction the world is going. And I know there's a lot of things that I can't do, but one of the things that I can do is make sure that I have a reserve of food stored up with a 25-year shelf life, no less, to feed my family should lean times come. This is why I'd like you to check out lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Lots of different packages. I mean, for every possible budget, if you are willing to go all in, get a four-person, one-year supply, they can handle that. If you're looking for a nice grab-and-go bag with, you know, 61 servings of great foods, again, shelf-stable foods, these will sit on the shelf and be edible for 25 years. You can grab one of those in a nice roll-up dry bag for $99.99. And best of all, you'll save 10% off at checkout if you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E. So take advantage of it. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I'm sharing this article from Alistair Cook, Crook rather, Alistair Crook, writing about the strategic apocalypse in Afghanistan, which he says is a seismic shift years in the making. And he talks about some of the mourning that's going on in the media about uh, what has happened in Afghanistan. We talked about uh, the New York Times mourning that, oh, that dream of being the indispensable nation in the world, that's America's dream, where the value of civil rights, women's empowerment, and religious tolerance rule proved to be just a dream. And Michael Rubin, representing the hawkish American Enterprise Institute, pronounced a eulogy over the corpse saying Biden, Blinken, and Jake Sullivan might craft statements about the mistakes of earlier NATO overreach and the need for Washington to focus on its core interests further west. And Pentagon officials and diplomats might contest any lessening of America's commitment with indignation, but the reality is NATO is a dead man walking. And an earlier piece reflecting fury at Biden and the sense of a strategic apocalypse having befallen Washington is caught in this agonized cry again from Michael Rubin, quote, by enabling China to advance its interest in Afghanistan, Biden also enables it to cut off India and other American allies from Central Asia. Simply put, Biden's incompetence now risks the entire post-World War II liberal order. God help the United States, end quote. Now, Alistair Crook says, look, Rubin is saying plainly what Afghanistan was always truly about, disrupting Central Asia to weaken China and Russia. Rubin at least spares us the hypocrisy about safeguarding girls' education. Others who are close to the U.S. military-industrial complex continue the mantra of the need to redeploy to Afghanistan and for continued war and consequent weapon sales in Afghanistan, in part to protect women's rights. Rubin concludes, rather than enhance America's position against China, however, Biden has hemorrhaged it. And Alistair Crook says in Britain, too, chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat, has lamented Biden's strategic mistake and the imperative to not give up, but to persevere. This isn't just about Afghanistan, he writes. It's about us all. We are engaged in a challenge over the way the world works. We're seeing autocratic powers like China and Russia challenge the rules and break the agreements we've made. 
Now, Tugendhat believes that we can turn this around. We need to. This is a choice. So far, we're choosing to lose. Alistair Crooks says many hawks in Washington acknowledge that this is, of course, impossible. That era is now gone. Indeed, what the last day's events in Afghanistan represent is a paradigm lost. And many are deeply angry at Biden, albeit reflecting mixed agendas, and are bemused, too, at how this could have occurred. This explanation, however, may be even more disturbing. The writing had long been writ in blood on the wall for Afghanistan. Namely, that there's a limit to how long a corrupt elite, severed from its roots and its own people, can be sustained by a waning alien culture. He says the urgings from the British Prime Minister in a telecon with Biden, however, that the latter must preserve the gains of the last 20 years in Afghanistan is literally to dream. Now, here's the interesting part. He says the deeper story is the one not just of the transformation of the Taliban, but rather the seismic shift in geopolitics. Western intelligence agencies were so consumed with counterterrorism that they failed to see the new dynamics at play. And certainly that might explain the Biden administration's assessment of the long months it would take before the Ghani regime was at risk of falling. But Alistair Crooks says the Taliban we see today is far more complex, multi-ethnic and sophisticated of a coalition, which is why they've been able at such breathtaking speed to topple the Western-installed Afghanistan government. They talk Afghan political inclusion, and they look to Iran, Russia, China, and Pakistan for mediation, and to facilitate their place in the great game. They aspire to play a regional role as a pluralist Sunni Islamist government. That's why they've given explicit assurances to these key external partners that their rise to power will bring neither a bloodbath of score-settling nor civil war. They also promise that the different religious sects will be respected and girls and women can and will be educated. Many years ago, before the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in 1979, Alistair Crook was based in Peshawar, uh, Pakistan, near Afghanistan. In fact, he says he was responsible for diplomatic reporting on the war and engagement with Afghan leaders during the Soviet era. He says, I came to know the Taliban, which had recently been forged by Pakistani intelligence under General Hamid Gul. They were, then, intensely parochial, geographically and politically sectarian, xenophobic, tribal, and unbendingly rigid. As Pashtuns, recidivists, and to the biggest minority ethnic group in in Afghanistan, they would kill other ethnicities wantonly. Shia Harazas, in particular, as apostates, were killed. They detested Ahmad Shad Massoud, the lion on Panjshir, and hero of resistance to the Soviets, because he was a Tajik. Some of their fundamentalism was fueled by the radicalized strains of Islam, Diobandism, and Wahhabism. Exports of Saudi Arabia and Dar al-Salam, let's try that again, Hauza in India. But it was mostly ancient tribal lore known as Pashtun Wali. He says the Taliban we see today is a far more complex, multi-ethnic, and sophisticated coalition. And that's why they've been able at such breathtaking speed to to topple that Western-installed Afghanistan government. This is why they aspire to play that regional role. It's why they've given explicit assurances that they're not going to just go around, you know, getting even with everybody. 
The sweep of the Taliban to power, however, he says, has been years in the making, with key outside actors playing a crucial part in overseeing the metamorphosis. More concretely, as consensus with the Taliban on the future was reached, those external powers like China, Russia, and Pakistan, who brought their Afghan allies to the negotiating table alongside the Taliban, those latter's links go back to uh, China for several years. Iran, too, has been engaged with the Taliban and other Afghan components in a similar vein for at least two decades. Russia and Pakistan engaged jointly in December 2016. So he says, as a result of this concerted outreach, the Taliban leadership adjusted to the real politic of Central Asia. They see that the SCO represents the coming regional strategic paradigm which can enable them to come out of their isolation as political untouchables and pave a path for them to govern and rebuild Afghanistan with economic assistance from SEO member states. Now, of course, civil war remains a risk. Alistair Crook says we can expect the CIA will try to stand up an Afghan counterinsurgency to the new government. That path isn't difficult to forecast. Acts of violence and assassinations will and are being attributed to the terrorist Taliban. And there will likely be false flag operations. And there's talk, too, mostly in the West, as to whether or not the Taliban can be trusted or will stick to their undertakings. But he says it's not just a matter or a simple question of trust. The difference today lies with the external geopolitical architecture that's brought this event into being. These external regional partners will tell and have told the Taliban that if they violate their assurances... They will regain their international pariah status. They'll be classified as terrorists again. Their borders will close. Their economy will tank. And the country racked by civil war yet again. In short, the calculus is rooted in self-interest rather than the presumption of trust. And what's fascinating, and we're going to come back to this at the, uh, at the other side of the break, is that China is more determined to shape the region than many analysts realize. This is actually playing very well into China's hands. I'll have Alistair Crook's explanation, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you a marvelous piece from... uh, This is published on LewRockwell.com. It's from Alistair Crook, and it's describing the seismic shift that you can observe in what's taken place in Afghanistan. And, you know, I wish I could say uh, this is really good news, but uh, if you're in China or if you're a part of the Chinese Communist Party, it might not be such bad news, but it's it's very interesting how this uh, realignment is taking place. And just to, to get back into, uh, into the, the take from Alistair Crook, he says, China is more determined to shape the region than many analysts realize. 
In fact, he says it's often said that China is purely mercantile, interested only in advancing its economic agenda. But he says China's Xinjiang province, its Islamist underbelly, shares a border with Afghanistan. So that touches on state security. And China, therefore, will require stability in Afghanistan. It will not tolerate ethnic Turkic, ins- Turkic insurgents spurred by the West moving into or from Afghanistan into Turkmenistan or Xinjiang. The Uyghurs are ethnically Turkic. We can expect China to be tough on this point. And thus, not only have the U.S. and NATO been forced to exit from the crossroads of Asia in desperate disarray, But these developments set the stage for a major evolution of Russia and China's economic and trade regional corridor plans. They also transformed the security of Central Asia in respect to Chinese and Russian vulnerabilities there. The U.S. so far has been denied an alternative military base in Central Asia, relocating its forces instead to Jordan. Now, he says, to be fair... Michael Rubin was half right when he said that rather than enhance America's position against China, Biden has hemorrhaged it, but only half right. Because the missing other half is that Washington was outplayed by Russia, China, and Iran. Western intelligence failed utterly to see how the new domestic Afghan dynamics, the external actors underwriting the Taliban's negotiations with the, with the tribes, And they still don't see all the external dominoes falling into place around an Afghan pivot that changes the whole Central Asian calculus. Crook says additional pieces to this jigsaw puzzle of paradigm change have become visible in the wake of the Taliban's sweep to power. One domino fell even before the Kabul route. That was Iran's new administration has strategically strategically repositioned that country towards prioritizing relations with other Islamic states, but in partnership with Russia and China. The Iranian National Security Council then decided to draft the Vienna, decided to agree to the draft Vienna agreement for a relaunch of JCPOA. That's the second domino to slip into place. During the route, China and Russia coincidentally closed the airspace over northern Afghanistan on account of their joint military exercises taking place to the north of Afghanistan. And for the first time, those two powers exercised under joint military control. That represents the third and very significant domino, though barely one that's barely noticed by the West. Finally, Pakistan strategically repositioned two, declining to host any U.S. military presence in its territory. And then there's one last domino, and that was Iran was invited formally to join the SCO, which ultimately would imply Iran joining the Eurasian Economic Union, thus giving that country a fresh economic and trade horizon absent the lifting of the U.S. siege on its economy. So not only have the U.S. and NATO been forced to exit from this new strategic locus, but these parallel developments set the stage for a major evolution of Russia and China's economic and trade regional corridor plan. Alistair Crook says, hey, China's going to play a key part in this. China and Russia have recognized the Taliban government. China will likely build a pipeline along the five-nation corridor, bringing Iranian oil to China via northern Afghanistan. And it will likely then follow on with the North-South Corridor, ultimately linking St. Petersburg via Afghanistan to Iran's Shabahar port lying across the strait from Oman. And the bottom line is, for the West, this 
Here's a great word for you. Concatenation of falling dominoes has been near incomprehensible. Again, this is from Alistair Crook, former British diplomat, founder, and director of the Beirut-based Conflicts Forum. I don't think this is the kind of stuff that uh, I would be normally discussing around the dinner table, but it is interesting, just from the standpoint of, you know, that not that curious how nations that uh, traditionally our own uh, leadership has been at odds with have fallen into line very strategically. And if you're, if you're biblically minded, you know, if you uh, think about uh, biblical prophecy, think about China, Russia, Iran, and, and Afghanistan, and Pakistan, all more or less being on the same page or at least having some kind of alliance. And suddenly the prospect of a 300 million man army of Gog starts to kind of make sense. I don't know. I'm just saying that might be one to pay attention to. You never know. Kind of a strange thing. Anyhow, moving on. A couple other things. I wanted to mention this one in passing. I'll include this in the show notes, and there's actually a a video that you can watch. Now that the Pfizer vaccine has been approved by the FDA... The folks who have been pushing it the hardest, Dr. Fauci, I'm looking in your direction, are ready to really get serious about making the unvaccinated take the shot. In fact, I believe it was just yesterday, Fauci, in in essence, said, hey, freedom's great and everything, but doggone it, enough is enough. We've got to get this done. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about what he means by that, where that's going. But I'm going to include a short video. This is about a four-minute long video of an interview that took place yesterday between host Laura Ingram and immunology professor Byram Bridal that explores the possibility that it is the vaccines rather than the unvaccinated that are driving these COVID variants. I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a doctor. So there's a lot of what he said that I'm like, wow, I don't understand it. But he makes a fairly convincing case that uh, it's it's not the prospect of, uh, you know, the unvaccinated are out there spreading disease everywhere they go. It's very clear, even if you've been vaccinated, you can still get COVID. And in fact, they're saying that the, the um, transmissible virus collects in the, the nasal passages of the vaccinated as strong as it does in the, the nasal passages of those who are unvaccinated. This isn't to, to make you, you know, doubt yourself or hate yourself if you've gotten the vaccine, but doesn't that seem a little bit odd? Doesn't that seem like, you know, this, the, the vaccine was supposed to provide protection. And yet people who've been vaccinated are being told, oh, no, you still have to wear the mask. You still have to be careful. Apparently they can still infect others. Probably the strongest evidence of this is you look at Israel, which is the hyper vaccinated nation. A clear majority of their citizens were vaccinated, and yet uh, the Delta variant is, uh, you know, infecting people right and left in Israel. Which, by the way, is not the same thing as saying it's killing people right and left. It's just very clear. Even with the vaccine, the variant is, uh, is getting around it. So I think that's a fair question to ask. Is the variant being driven by the vaccine rather than the unvaccinated? And the final question that that comes to mind, what is going to happen 
to the unvaccinated. Now that there is approval, I mean, I, I know the official press releases, I've seen local news on up to national news talk about, well, you know, there was about 30% of people who said they wouldn't wait, they would, they would wait and they wouldn't take the vaccine until the FDA had given its approval. Well, here's the approval. They look at their watch and they tap their foot. Hmm? Hmm? You going to take it? <laughs> I don't think they understand that the reason that many of us are vaccine hesitant has nothing to do with conspiracy theories about nanobots and 5G technology, and it has everything to do with wondering why this is being forced on us so hard. Maybe that's the wrong attitude, but I don't know. My survival instincts tell me when someone is trying to force you or coerce you into doing something against your will, and they just won't, re- they won't give up. They're relentless. They double down every time. They cheer when, well, you lost your job because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. That seems like a pretty big red flag. Maybe I shouldn't be doing what they're insisting that I do. I know it sounds like, well, that's just petulant, isn't it? No, this is a matter of uh, self-preservation, as well as asserting my autonomy over myself. I just wish more people felt this way. Maybe you do as well. Thanks again for joining us today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.